I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here anymore. I'm on a wave. I'm on a mountain. I'm on a roller coaster sailing across the sky. And the only trouble is in wondering why. Roger, watch out for the camera. Hey, live from the Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to try to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. Announcements, remember September Friday 11th and September 12th, a Saturday. Uh, Dr. Don Preston, expert preterist uh, position, he'll be with us. And you want to take advantage of that, join us here at the Heart of the Matter studios. It's not till September, we'll keep reminding you but just want to keep it uh, in your uh, minds. Challenge your presuppositions when it comes to end times. Test all things. Don't cower behind dogma. Join us, test, check it out. Additionally, we want you to know that if you have a need to speak with somebody, we get calls you know, quite frequently from people from all over, and we want you to call our uh, phone. And so here's the number. Is that the number, Seth? That's the number, Merle, 888-868-4686. Uh, and if you need to talk to somebody, call that number and we have three people who, myself included, who will talk to you and get back to you about questions, that, any questions you might have, concerns, whatever it might be. So uh, we, will, we do get back to you too. Uh, had some feedback on Brother Matt Slick returning to discuss the Trinity. Again, uh, people, I, I guess uh, Matt has been on his radio show and been telling people to uh, kind of call or notify us and say, hey, why don't you engage with him on this very important uh, topic and my disregard for it. And a number of you have said that Matt is a worthy opponent, that uh, I ought to entertain his desires to represent the pro-Trinitarian uh, ideal. Now, think about it just for a minute. Just, just consider it. First of all, do any of you really believe that Matt or I could solve this dilemma between ourselves? Uh, I'm not going to probably change. Matt certainly isn't going to change. Uh, there would be flurries of some exciting banter, and there would a, a good point could be made here, and a counterpoint could be made there. But I seriously doubt that through this, anybody are, is really going to be moved to reform their opinions on, on the thing. So secondly, I love Matt, and, and I admit to his uncanny ability to, to, to recite chapter and verse. But this doesn't make for a really good platform for discussion. It's good for you know filibusters and, 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 and me ranting and raving and talking over each other. Uh, the real understanding occurs when you take one little point or one passage and you really spend time talking about that and, and really uh, thresh it out. 
So true scriptures tell us to reason together and they tell us to worship God using our hearts and our minds. Uh, but we know all this stuff by the Spirit in conjunction with the Word. Therefore, I'm of the opinion that dragging the Trinity out of the closet and uh, making arguments over whether it's acceptable or unacceptable is really going to be beneficial. It brings me to the final point on the matter. I am not fighting against Trinitarians. I'm not fighting against Benetarians or Oneness Pentecostals. Uh, our ministry promotes and defends the right any Christian has to understand and interpret Scripture to the best of their ability with the Holy Spirit guiding. If there's differences of opinion, let it be. So uh, this is kind of lost when we bring people in to fight over a dogmatic position that is unknowable. Let me kind of put it to you this way, the way I see it, and, and some people won't agree. Trinitarianism, uh, like Mormonism or Calvinism or Arminianism, are all learned isms. Every one of them have to be taught in order to understand and believe. A Calvinist is always has to be taught by a Calvinist to understand that ism. Um, a Trinitarian has to be taught that doctrine. Uh, Mormonism, you have to be taught Mormonism by a Mormon uh, nobody on earth would ever pick up the Bible without the input of a Calvinist or a Mormon or a Trinitarian or an Arminianist or any and read it and come up with that, those systems. They were concocted by very original thinkers or very smart people and, and they interpreted and they brought it forward. So you have to be taught those things in order to become those things. And uh, when people become comfortable with the system that they've been taught and the ism provides them with all the answers and gives them that security, and especially when someone has mastered the nuances of their particular system as a means to defend it and, and go against people with it, there's no dialoguing that's going to change points of view. It's it, everything. Uh, just becomes a promotional campaign to win the audience over to their side or something like that. And so there's just intellectual jousting and pissing contests and, and presentations of who has their stick down the best. And it's engaging for people, but I think it's foolishness and ego-based and I don't think it accomplishes much. So let me reiterate, we stand on, uh, We stand on the good news. Every believer has the right to believe how they're going to believe. They have the right to and the responsibility to search and embrace things as they are led. There is no belief or opinion on earth that ought to divide a brother or sister. Really, I don't believe so. People who believe that Jesus is the way, truth, and the life, who accept him as a savior, they can believe in a trinity, oneness, futurism, preterism, communism, capitalism. If Obama, Clinton, Bush, all believe in Jesus, they're my brothers. If Bruce Jenner is a believer, he is my brother, or my sister, or my brother, or my sister. <laughs> Can't, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding, Bruce. Uh, people can see homosexuality as, as something that they are. People can say abortion is permissible or not. People can lay in the gutter as an alcoholic, a meth addict, liar, a cheater, a wealthy industrialist. Here's why. 
Here's why. Listen closely. Um, God, if they're a believer, is with them. And God is in them. And working on them and with them by faith. They are his by faith, remember, not by the works of righteousness. They are not his by knowledge. They're not his by opinion. They are responsible to him. He's either their king, savior, or he's not. If they are his by faith, he deals with them. So we don't need to worry about opinions and all the other things that get in between us. We trust God will handle it. So can you see why divisions among fellow Christians are so utterly ridiculous? Uh, we are saved by him and his shed blood, not opinions, not works, not anything else. So let's calm it all down. Let love abide, prompted by faith in Christ Jesus. So why do we take this approach to the ministry and to this show? To help other people who are trapped by dogma and religion and doctrines and help them see that they don't have to be. We received this email from a woman named Vicky, or Vix is how she put it. This is what it says. I think we have a graphic for it. Thank you so much for Heart of the Matter. Thank you for putting yourself out there and on the line. Thank you for questioning everything because as an ex-Mormon, I needed everything I knew deconstructed, and that includes everything I had been taught about other churches and theologies particularly from a Mormon perspective. I praise God that he's using you in this way because it has led me to test all things, question things, become born again. My understanding of who I am and my relationship with, to me, a whole new Jesus has been a long journey for our whole family coming out from being card-carrying higher ward stake leadership callings and a son who has refused his mission call. It has been our experience that when you come out of Mormonism, you distrust man and theologies with all your being. You don't want to be deceived again and get hooked up in something that will put you in a church institution, put a church institution between you and God ever again. So thank you for coming across as divergent, free-thinking, questioning, and a bit of a stubborn old goat. I used to be a jackass. I used to be a donkey. I used to be a, oh, what'd they call me? Uh, rust, a musty clam. Thank you, Kathy, Maggie, for remembering that. <laughs> she comes in building and she looks at me. She can't remember my name, but she, and she never speaks a word, but she just said musty clam. That's... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the, 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 uh, Vicky goes on, we are no longer empty and tired. I just want our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ to know that you may have upset them. However, you are being used with the purpose to bring people in the body of Christ who truly have no understanding of Christianity. And we really need everything questioned and broken down so that we can t learn to take it to the Bible and prayer and learn to trust the real God. To any Latter-day Saint watching, read your Bibles without scripture chaining. Pray to have your hearts open to the truth because if all is well in Zion, there's no problem in doing this. And she ends her email there. I thought that was a great email, uh, not because of the platitudes and, and things, but I thought it was great because she is able to see why we do what we do. So much heat. You know, I can't tell you how difficult it is to reach out to people who once seriously considered me a brother in the Lord and be met with silence, no phone calls returned, disrespect, comments about me being not a believer, all kinds of really bad stuff. They don't understand the methodology that we're using. I hope that's not what Christianity is all about. Uh, 
And with that, how about a moment from the word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Oh, in the eighth chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul enters into a discussion about eating meat that is sacrificed to idols. A big subject in our world today, isn't it? Anyway, uh, back in the day, there were all sorts of debates about, do you eat the meat? Do you not eat the meat? Is it okay to eat the meat? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2, now, as touching things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up but charity edifies. If any man thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. The saints at Corinth were in a debate. Is it permissible for Christians to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? For some, it would have been a horrible thing to participate in that. For others, like me, I would have said in the Koine Greek, pass the ketchup. Uh, some people are very restricted. Some people are very loose, right? And so Paul's point seems to be, listen, we all have opinions. We all have insights on this thing. He says, we all have knowledge, but he adds, knowledge makes us proud. Knowledge gets, gives, makes us stand there and think that we have, our opinion is superior to someone else. He says, but love edifies. It, it, it uplifts, it illuminates, it enlightens. What does that mean? I would suggest it, it that he seems to mean that knowing and knowledge is really, really limited in scope when it comes from us. So, yes, we can, we can express our opinion. Well, I don't know about me, you know, if you want to, or whatever it is. But love is the thing that has to abide. It makes things clear and understandable. In Romans chapter 14, Paul hits on the very same subject. Different group. He says in verse 10 of chapter 14, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you set at naught your brother? For we shall all stand, all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. I'm not going to be talking about these guys. They're not going to be talking about me. We're going to be talking about ourselves. So it's completely subjective in what we're going to be saying to God. Paul goes on, let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man puts a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. He says, I know and I'm persuaded of the Lord Jesus. There is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. That's very subjective. He says, there's nothing in and of itself that's unclean. If you esteem something to be unclean, to you it's unclean. That is a real liberal open way of determining what is good and what is bad in your life. But if your brother is grieved with the meat... Now walkest thou not charitably, not with love. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not your good be evil spoken of. You know what good he's talking about? The liberty that you have to eat meat. The liberty you have to have a whiskey at dinner or wine or whatever you have. It's the liberty. That's a good thing, he says. But don't let it become something that's bad. 
It's very, very reasonable. For the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink, but in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he that is in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another person. So I go out to a restaurant. I often, in this state, don't have any alcoholic beverages when I'm in a restaurant. Why? People know what I've do, done on TV here before. They know what I... And so I'm sitting there, if I'm slogging them back, I just don't want to even get engaged with that. When I go to California, people don't know me that way. Will I slog one back if I want to? Absolutely. Is that hypocrisy? No. It's just saying I don't want to stumble anybody who might look to me for something. I'm just going to do what I feel free in, but I'm going to use love for my brother first. That's what Paul's suggesting. He says here, again, for meat destroys not the work of God. You could say drink. You could say Sabbath days. You could say the way someone dresses. You could say tattoos. You could say anything. It doesn't destroy the work of God. All things are indeed pure, he says, but it is evil for that man who eats with offense. It's wrong to, in a group of vegetarians, pull out the turkey leg. You know, it's wrong at an AA meeting to be slogging them back and saying, I have the liberty to do this in Jesus, man. So that's what he's trying to get through. Listen to this next verse, though. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Do you have faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that commends not himself, that condemneth not himself in the thing that he allows. So, he, that is such a beautiful verse. Do you have faith? Then have it yourself toward God. I know drinking this, this uh, beer, that it's great with God, that we have a great relationship and I have faith with him. And I, I have it to thy, happy is he who can, condemneth not himself in the thing that he allows. It's such a beautiful, liberal, open, inviting faith that we have because it's not steeped in things of the flesh. But love has to abide. It has to be the thing that overrides our actions for others. And if, it, if we start thinking of self instead of others' needs in our actions, then we start to show that we're failing in what Paul says. Our knowledge can really work against us, especially in the body. If it's not shared with love and humility and, and admitted that it is limited in scope, especially compared to God, um, therefore subject to different interpretations, we need to be really careful. Solomon cynically concluded in Ecclesiastes 1.18, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Uh, he added in verse uh, chapter 12, verse 11 and 12, the words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further by these, my son, be admonished of making many books. There is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. This is from Solomon, who was had the great wisdom. Of course, he had trouble later on, but Really interesting. Of course, the proverb we're familiar with, it's behind me on our wall. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. 
in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Depart from evil. Very good. The interesting thing about the Bible is it always presents alternative views, which are highly paradoxical, because we know the Bible tells us to study to show ourselves approved. So that seems like it's on the opposite end of what, what Solomon said. And it seems to me the way to balance this apparent contradictory stuff is to back away from dogma, back away from set concrete things, allow people to come to God as they are, and by and through His Spirit and trust that God is working with them. Well, we need doctrinal purity. What doctrinal purity do we need? Tell me. I know everyone believes that we're supposed to have this doctrinal purity, but I just see disagreement on everything. Okay? So, one final personal anecdote. I'm sorry. I apologize for it. It comes from my own family. I typically don't do it, but it it fits in with this. As a father, how do I want my children, my daughters, my grandchildren to relate to God and to other people? Do I want my children to look at him and other people dogmatically? Or do I want my children and my grandsons to look at God with open hearts of love and to look at others with a non-judgmental eye? What do I as a father want from my children? Do I want them to be narrow, strict thinkers on doctrine? Or do I want them to err on the side of love every time? So my daughter Cassidy and Delaney, they visited their sister Mallory, who lives in Sweden, and her family uh, due to some generosity of someone with a lot of sky miles. And Cassidy wrote the following, an experience that she had there. So I'm going to read it because I thought it was very fitting to what we're all about. She says, quote, Mallory's house is surrounded by potato farms, small golden potatoes that taste like butter. Today they were harvested, the tractors plowing up and down the fields, and Mallory got permission for us to raid the land for whatever was left behind. As we dug our hands in the dirt, Mallory mentioned that we were gleaning. And for the rest of the time we spent on our hands and knees, I was thinking of the Creator. As I, wa I watched as the tractor plowed and harvested thousands of potatoes, potatoes that were ready to be picked, that went with ease into the mouth of the machinery, I thought of the first fruits, believers, sons and daughters. I thought of God in the front seat of that plow. The potatoes allowed us came in roughly three identities. There were green potatoes, potatoes that had yet to ripen, weren't fully prepared to pluck away from the plant and ascend into the plow. These potatoes reminded me of the people who were on the cusp, who aren't quite there yet, who haven't reached their full potential, but with a little fire and love, but will with a little fire and love. Then there are the perfect potatoes, potatoes that, in theory, should have been, would have expected to be gathered, but for whatever reason, weren't. These potatoes reminded me of the Pharisees, the, the religious, the zealots, the legalists, those lacking in love it takes to ascend upward. Finally, there were the rotten potatoes, ugly, marred, inedible. The evil people, the bitter, resentful, angry, hateful, the kind of potatoes no one wants but that still, at their very core, have something to save. A shred, a crumb, an atom of gold potato that tastes like butter. It stunned me to witness and participate in an actual harvest gleaning 
to grasp the symbolism. Mallory mentioned, after having shared my thoughts with her, that no one would pick the rotten tomatoes. That as humans gleaning for ourselves, we would leave those behind. To think of the wonder and love of a God who would choose them anyway, who would work to peel away the hardened, rotten flesh to get to the core of belief of love. What an astounding God, and yet he could and would be nothing else. He wants by hand all, and he will get by hand all. I looked at the ground below me, miles and miles of fruit that were left to rot in the sun, and I thought of God getting out of the plow, taking on flesh, and individually gathering, saving the potatoes that were left behind. And I praised and praised and praised. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we seek you and we want to know you from the heart, with the mind, to serve you in love and to be known by the love that we have for everyone that we don't exclude, as James talks about, that we don't show preference, that we love each other fully. We pray your blessings upon the staff and volunteers, the audience, whether here or home or who will watch in the archives. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is the good news? Really, what's the good news? What is it to you? Who is it for? A man walks into a room full of people. He steps to the microphone and he says, I have some good news. Most, if not all the people, will look up to him with interest to hear what this good news is all about. They'll want to know how this news will affect them or apply to them, make their lives better. The scriptures talk about good news. Is it for everyone in the room or is it for only a few? If only for some, if the good news is only for some, is it really, truly good news? Think about that. Is it good news if it's only for some? Imagine a family sitting at the dinner table. We'll call them the Beasleys. It's a handsome name. Mom and dad and three kids, Katie, Carrie, and Henry. They really love each other. They sacrifice for each other. They vacation together. They sing songs when they're on the roads and, and the highways and byways as a family. The family trusts their dad's views on things on, and his opinions on matters. And mom, their mom is the lifeblood of the family. The mom is sacrifices for the common good. Uh, a mom, if there's ever been a mother, Mrs. Beasley. So at dinner, dad makes an announcement. He says, God has given our family some really good news, you guys. What is it, Dad? Henry says, eyes full of trust and wonder. Well, son, Katie and Carrie and I have been saved by Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that good news? Henry looks at his mom. What about us, Dad? Dad replies, I'm sorry, son. There's no good news for you or no good news for mom. What does that mean, Henry? It means that you and mom are going to hell, son. For how long? Forever, son. What's in hell, dad? Fire. What will happen to mom and I, dad? You will burn forever and ever and ever, son. 
The good news is only for me and Katie and Carrie. Dad replies, I'm sorry, son. There's no good news for you. Listen, could the good news really be good if it wasn't for all of the family members of the Beasleys? Could it really be good news if Jesus didn't do it for all of them? We understand how Dad and Katie and Carrie might think it's good news, but in the end, would Mom and Henry? And of course, Mom and Henry could be kind of happy for Dad and Carrie and, and Katie, but could Dad and Katie and Carrie really even see the news as good, being that Mom and Henry don't get it? Could they really think it's good? In Christianity, we've, we've accepted this thing that what's going to happen is those people who don't make it, we're going to just forget them. God will wipe them out of our minds forever. And so we won't have to think of them actually existing somewhere else and burning. And that's just one family sitting around a dinner table. Now let's look at the world. Let's look at everyone who's ever been born since Adam and Eve and, and, and down to a baby born right now. Let's look at that whole world. Friends, is it good news or is it not? This faith, when we look at it in that way as it's limited, it be, has become... It's moved from a love of a, a faith of love and selflessness. Let me explain. Can you see how unloving and selfish the good news turns out to be if we, those who have it now, believe it's only for us? Can you see how self-centered and egotistical it is to believe that those who have it are the special ones and and that's all we really care about, that Jesus saved me, 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 me. And he didn't save you. Too bad, hell for you. Like Henry and mom, Beasley, how could the world see the good news as good in this situation? But more to the point, how do we who've received it consider it good if it's only for us? I don't understand that. And I am a sinful man. And if I can't understand it, why would I think God would see it that way? Some call it good because God has done it. He's orchestrated it, so they lay it all at his feet. He's the one who's done it. Look to him. His sovereignty, he has chosen a few, and the rest will go. We relish the fact that billions will suffer immeasurably for eternities because this is God's will. And then... As the chosen fall prostrate on the ground, praising him for choosing us, we prove our utter devotion to him, and it just, the cycle keeps going. I would suggest that this is one of the most egregious forms of taking God's name in vain. That it's, it's an egregious form of taking his name in vain to tell people that he doesn't love everyone, to tell people that it is limited. I would strongly suggest that such thinking is not God-honoring, but is a front to his sovereignty. It's an affront to his love and his long suffering. I would suggest the highest honor any Christian can bestow on the sovereign God is to acknowledge that he so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son to save it, the world, all of it, by and through his son, only by and through his son. But in the end, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and God will have accomplished his sovereign will, and he will become all in all. 
Let's go to Laura. Wait, before we do that, let's open up the phone lines. 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. We're going to look at a short spot. And we're going to come back to Laura in McAllen, Texas. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, You can pick that up going to www.hotm.tv. Uh, we're going to go to Laura in McAllen, Texas. Laura, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean. Yes. Hi. Um, I just talked to you. I've, I've been watching or watching videos on, on YouTube the past three weeks and just discovered um, your show. And um, my daughter uh, was... Um, converted to Mormonism four, four and a half months ago. Um, she was in Utah for a drug rehab situation and we had no idea that, that she was um, being friendshiped or, or whatever tactics were used on her and, and, and then we found out a few a week before that she was going to be baptized. Um, we tried to, um, we spoke to the bishop there who uh, would not request, not honor our request to postpone this baptism. The first thing he said to us was, do you think we're a cult? <laughs> and um, um, so we, we tried to stop it and, and Bishop Craig Moody said, Oh, we, we will be her stewards now. We will wrap our arms around her. We will be responsible for her. And um, essentially took our parental rights away from us. And I, at, at this point, I'm, I'm just wondering, for, for an 18-year-old, um, now her goals are to go on a mission, get married, and have babies. 
she's she's giving up college. Uh, she's living. She has a job out there, living on her own, totally supporting herself, I guess. But um, I I'm wondering, you know, how do you think it's possible for her to wake up? And if um, do you, what would you think if at some point we just go out there and and get her and or you know stop her from going on a mission or well Laura <laughs> she's 18 so she can make her decisions uh, I, are you if you're not giving her any financial support it's hard to hold that over her head and at this point you know she was addicted to drugs or whatever and and was the institution that she was in here LDS owned uh, no she she was actually at a uh, wilderness therapy for two months and then a, a transition program where she could have a job and whatever and um, uh, you know somewhat of a social life I guess and but uh, you know she she kept that sort of that was kept secret from us and uh, you know um, our relationship was uh, we were trying to work on our relationship but um, anyway that was um, uh, so, never, never made known to us that, that yeah. um, so. listen Laura the the LDS church and the local at the local level can be very inviting it can be very loving the ward uh, the ward system and the young adult wards and things like that and the family uh, aspects can be very inviting especially to a young girl who is trying to stay off drugs and adopt a new way of life and and things like that the real question now is what how should you you react as her parents and what can you do as her parents to help her uh, see the light without alienating her and making you the enemy in my estimation, right. that's the real uh, goal. Are you guys Christian believers or of some other faith? Yes. Yes. Okay. So what I, I mean, this is what I would do. I would love the uh, heck out of this child. And I would not go in with gangbusters and, and uh, throw all the kitchen sink at her and the cult that Mormonism is. And did you know this? And <laughs> did you know that? Because what it will do at this stage in her life typically is it not always but typically it just makes you the bad guy because she's receiving so much love and she's getting accolades for converting and leaving her drugs behind and coming to the church and the Lord and and, and Mormonism and so what happens is I, I've seen this all frequently up here is that the kids just they become alienated from the family and they love the church and it just steeps in her more years in the institution than she needs. So your love, your long suffering, and just, I mean, really kind, you know, you've joined the Mormon church, you're doing so well. I mean, not that you've joined the Mormon church, but it sounds like you're doing so well. You have a job, you're self-sufficient. We're so proud of you. When can we see you again? And, and fly out and see her and try to hold your tongue. Um, and I say this from experience. I mean, my three daughters were LDS for a good four years, five years while I was in this ministry. 
I'd drive them to seminary, I'd take them to their steak dances, I'd go to church, I'd sit with them, and I did not badmouth unless they brought it up to me. In time, she will come to you and something will click, unless she meets a guy. If she meets a guy who's LDS and strong, she probably will marry him, she's in love now, and then, I, yeah. Won't, I won't let that happen. Good luck. I will, I handcuff myself to her before she walks into the temple or whatever and I won't let it happen and I will tell them you know you took her away from me and now I'm taking her back from you Laura I'm trying to tell you um, if you don't think you will let it happen in my opinion could be wrong in your case you will drive a, a really strong wedge I know what you're saying I get it I can't tell you how many really strong-minded people who are Christians in this state, children, go and join the Mormon church because the parents are so on their back against what they're doing. It gives them something to rebel with. I just would not suggest that. I, I would suggest love in the face of all of it and continued prayer and share, answer, asking questions just say, hey, tell me about this. Tell me what it means and, and, and just try to see. I, 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 you called the show. This is my best advice. Having for 10 years now dealt with people on the phones on a weekly basis and emails on a daily basis who run into stuff like this. Um, well, I did go gangbusters Mother's Day weekend when, when she came to visit for the first time in nine months. Um, and then, uh, you know, we've been okay since then, but again, tonight I asked, so, so what, what do you do in the, in the temple or whatever? And she got really defensive and, um, uh, so that, that cut our conversation short. You see, Laura, she's found some happiness. She's found some, she's found some stability. She's found some things that are working for her right now, and you're only gonna be viewed as the one to suck her back in to what she was before. And I just think it's a mistake. Let her go, you give her enough rope, and in time, you're praying, you're, you're loving her, and love overcomes everything in the end. It really does. But the animus and the anger and the accusations and the, it won't, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea. It's just my advice, my sister. Okay. Um. <laughs> yeah, I know you don't like it. <laughs> hey, listen, uh, I would, I'm in the state all the time. I would be more than happy. You can just say, listen, hey, Laura, well, uh, this, this guy would love to take you there. He was LDS 40 years. He'll meet you for lunch down in Provo or wherever she is. And let me talk to her. Have someone else be the bad guy. But don't you be the bad guy. Okay. All uh, right. Let Open-minded in the beginning. Because um, I, I, I wasn't aware of uh, what goes on in the Mormon church. Um, but once I found out, and, and of course she she says something ugly things like, what what do you do? Go to some anti-Mormon website? Don't believe everything you you read on on the interweb. Um, well. so, <laughs> um, so anyway, I I tried to be open minded and um, so, um, 
but I guess I will um, do as you say, as other people have told me as well. They've told me I'm not going to be the key turner in this thing. She's going to have to figure it out on her own. Jesus' own brothers didn't believe he was the Lord. They thought he was mad. Family, family relationships, unless they're really unique, sometimes we see entire families make it out of the church and they, never, they all come out. That happens. But often there's so much emotion and stuff and so much that often it just blows everything apart and people go the opposite directions. I'd hate to see. If we can help you, if the ministry can help you at all, please let us know, Laura. Okay. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Listen, uh, I know, considering what we've done in the past, a lot of people won't like this, but this girl was addicted to drugs. She went to a thing. She came out. She found friends who have clean lifestyles, and she's in the Mormon church. It's only going to be the spirit, and it's going to be good influence from Christians, and it's going to be knowledge coming out to her in a good way, looking at those temple videos you know, that Larry had that we talked about last week. She's online. Wait, so let's see what this temple thing. What? You know, things like that will work. But when Scripture tells us we do not war against flesh and blood. We don't do it. We war against principalities in dark places and in high, powerful places. And that's by prayer and by love that overcomes that stuff. But we don't fight against flesh and blood. Because what happens is you start becoming enemies with your own family and friends, etc. Let's go to Jared in New Orleans. Jared, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How you doing? Hey, good, good. I don't know if you remember I called last week. We had a little talk. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about what you said. You know, you, you brought up, uh, we were kind of talking about uh, Bible interpretation. Yeah. And you brought up the scripture that talks about the widows washing the saints' feet. Yeah. As like uh, to show us, I guess that um, you know we don't we don't widows today don't wash people's feet. That's not a part of our culture. Yeah, and it might it might be in other parts of the world today, but not in America. We don't do that. Right. And um, so it sounded kind of like you were saying. So see you there. We don't do that. So let's kind of apply that thinking to other scriptures that tell us what to do in the New Testament and the epistles and things like that. I, I wasn't really following uh, your interpretation method, I guess. Could you well, explain that? you want that me to reiterate bit? it? Yes, please. Okay. Here's, here's my point, Jared. Um, the Bible is taken spiritually. We don't take it in a literal application today. It was written at a time and place for a different people in different circumstances. And when you try to take it literally and make it work literally today, you are going to find that you or I or anyone else are going to have to pick and choose what to keep and what to get rid of. And when that happens, you have a certain group that chooses to keep this and a certain group that chooses to keep that. And then you have denominationalism and you have an inability to really function together. And that's why there's 32,000 Christian denominations in the world today. Jesus never intended that. This Bible was not available 
for people to re research and refer to for hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands, 1,500 years. So the Holy Spirit is, is what makes you a Christian, living in you by your faith. These things are here to increase our faith. It's by the hearing of word that our faith increases. But it is not a manual for dogmatism, is my point. Now go ahead. Okay, well, I, I think you're wrong about people not having the Bible for hundreds and thousands of years, but should, should I literally uh, believe on Jesus and call upon the name of the Lord and put my trust in Jesus? Is that something I should literally do? Or I, 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 would, I would think yes, I think that's a good thing. Okay, so that part's literal. The gospel message is literal. If you want to take it that way, that's up to you. I take it that way. Well, okay, if, if I was somebody who didn't know the Bible and I'm, I'm asking you, what would you tell me? Like, that, yes, that's something yeah. I should literally do, or that's just a spiritual uh, ana analogy? Or well, let me, give it, let me put it to you this way, Jared. I would say yes, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matt Slick, a very good Christian, would say, you don't have the power to believe. God has to pick you to believe. So right there on what that, that passage that you're using, we have a divergence of opinion between two guys who love the Lord. I'm trying to just express to you, and you're wrong about the Bible not being, being available. When do you think the Bible was available to believers? In a full, compact, in the way that we have the Bible today, when do you think it was available? Well, I know it was canonized uh, officially like in the year 300 or something. Okay, so that's 300 still, years. Yeah, but that's official can, canonization Do you in the Roman Catholic Church. There was people that had those scriptures for way before. How many? Then. How many of all the, there's 3,000 saved at the day of Pentecost. That was just at the day of Pentecost. So how many people, wait, the Bible was being written over that period of time. It did not exist. So when do you think we had just 25% just of the believers in Jesus carrying around this Bible before it was canonized? How long? You think it was weeks after Jesus? Months? A year? No, that's ridiculous. Okay, what's, what's not ridiculous? A hundred years? You're talking about a printed uh, edition, uh, English translation? No, I'm talking the about Bible? having the, the Greek manuscripts copied and copied and passed around where somebody had from Genesis and the Hebrew through Malachi and Matthew all the way through Revelation and somebody had that around in the manuscript form, the Greek manuscript and the Hebrew. What, when do you think that was a common thing that they carried around and studied? I don't, I don't know, Sean. That's, that's kind of getting off it's, of the topic that I it's called. Not, I, I I'm, it's very important to the topic, and here's why. I don't know that, I don't know that information. Well, look at no The way. scholars will tell you. I mean, they know. We know that the Bible they was not. They, they do they know. They, they, okay. they, can, they can try and figure out, but they don't know. <laughs> if it was more than 10 years, that's a long time to go without this book that is just imperative to people's souls. That's a long time. If it was more than 20, you're really going to, if it was more than 50, 
50. You don't have to, I'm not I'm not trying I'm not saying you have to have every book of the Bible really to get saved. Okay, which ones? All, I mean, all you need to do is hear the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay. You know, I can I can preach to somebody the gospel at their doorstep and give them a few verses and they can get saved. I can tell you right now there are guys who sit. I don't have to sit down and read the whole Bible to them and then and then and before they can you know trust in Jesus you know you could get saved off of John three sixteen. You can get saved without the Bible, brother. I mean, this is my point. You can get people. Um, People go to God in the mountain and they look to the heavens and they say, "I'm in trouble," and He saves them. You have placed your faith in a written book. I trust the Bible. I love why the Bible. Jesus, why did Jesus die on the cross? If I can just climb up a mountain and look up into the sky and God will save me. Yeah. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? So that he's, his blood could cleanse the hearts of those who believe on God. You look to the cosmos, God reveals himself. Is that, is that, a, is that I mean, where did you get that? That's wrong. What do you mean? The Bible or? Did you just make that up, or no. did that come from the Bible? Is that a verse? Or? Oh, no, no, no. The, the cosmos, Romans 1, I'm using the Bible. The cosmos reveals to all of us that he is there. Someone searching doesn't need to know that. They go out and they see the stars, and they say, you know, this is magnificent. If you're out there, I feel I'm alienated from you. Help me. And he saves them. You don't think that happens? Or you think someone has to actually hear words that are spoken from there in order to be saved? You have to believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. Oh, wait, now, that, is it Jesus Christ? Wait, is it Jesus Christ? And the wrath of God abides on him. Okay, wait a second. Is it Jesus Christ or is it Jesus Christos or is it uh, Yeshua? Which is it? It, it will, do I have to say Jesus or can someone say Jesus or can someone say Yeshua or can someone say God or can someone say whatever? You are taking things literally because you're a biblical literalist, but God cannot be boxed up, my friend. And we don't even, we don't even use the right name of Jesus. You're saying you have to believe in Jesus Christ. People don't, so many people don't even know him, but they acquiesce to God and he reaches in by Christ by what Christ did through his shed blood, only by him, and they are saved. And in time, they come to know his identity. But you have made it so that we have this systematic way. What if they, what if they in time don't come to know his identity? Are they still saved? What, what, in, what if what? You said in, in time they'll come to know his identity. Absolutely. What, Every knee what, will what bow. If, Every tongue. What if they don't come to know his identity? They will. Are they still saved? They will. He's God. Okay, I don't, I don't know where you get. I know you don't. From, but I know you um, don't. I mean, the Bible says that there's none other name uh, given among men, okay, whereby we must be saved, and that name is Jesus. Okay, it's an it's, English uh, translation of the name, you know, Jesus, Jesus, or whatever that's in the Greek. You know, that's his name, Jesus. Is it Jesus, so or is it a Jesus, or is it Yeshua? It's not Yeshua. I don't know uh, where people get that from, but that, that name is not in the Bible. There's no manuscript on earth that has the name Yeshua in it. Really? His name is, his name is Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, really. You're wrong about that, my friend, Jared. You're wrong about that. That's, all, that's okay. what his name is, my friend. It's in the Bible. 
You, Where is you, it in the Bible? Well, see, in the English, you're reading the oh. English translation of a Bible. Right. Go look yeah, at the original Yeshua language. Is a, is, if, Yeshua is a Hebrew word, and the New Testament was written in Greek. Yeshua, Yeshua Joshua is, is the way the Hebrews would say Jesus. Yeshua, Yeshua, that's his name. You, if you were living in Jesus' name and you said, hey, Jesus, he wouldn't even turn around. That wasn't his name. You're making a big deal about his name. That wasn't even his name. Do you see how foolish you're being? You're, you're compartmentalizing what you're saying, it up. Sean, so what you're saying is very foolish, Sean, because the only, <laughs> the only record we have of Jesus is the New Testament. And in the New Testament, his name is Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. His name isn't Jesus in so the New Testament. Yeshua, Yeshua is taking, you know, the he, taking the name of Jesus Jared, and translating Jared, it into Hebrew, Jared, which was a dead language for hundreds and thousands Jared, of years, and nobody knows how that was pronounced. Jared, Jared, you're talking you about the, you're Yeshua. talking about Yahweh now, when we don't know how to pronounce it. You're talking about Yahweh, and that's the tetragrammaton. I'm talking about the, the entire Hebrew language died off and people did not speak it for a very long time and we don't have tape recordings we can't hear how they pronounce those words that's right that's why we don't know how Jared. to pronounce the tetragrammaton that's how we they don't know how to pronounce you know people say yeshua or yashua or yashua jared but that name is not in the jared new testament. It's jared jesus is not in the new testament his name is yesus in the new testament and yesus is the way they translated Yeshua. Any person named Joshua is the same name. It's, his name is Joshua, the way we would pronounce it in English, Joshua. It's not a hidden name. It's not, not known how to pronounce it. It's Joshua. Je Jesus is three generations away from his real name. So you're wrong on this. You say Jesus is written in the New Testament. It's nowhere in the Greek, nowhere. It's Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, and we say Jesus. It's it's the English version of Jesus, but it's not Yeshua. I okay, mean, and look, what Sean, what I mean, is the Hebrew? What is the Hebrew definition for Jesus? Where did they get that name? Hebrew definition? No. What what was his name? What was the name Jesus? There are many Jews who had that name. What is it? It's Joshua. The book after uh, Moses, it's, Joshua took them into the promised land. It's, 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 it's in the Old Testament. That's his name. Anyway, this is, a, this is a total twist down something. I'm sorry I took us down there. Look it. If you want to believe the Bible literally, go ahead. I, I would suggest that it's understood spiritually, that the stories are not yeah, literal. Sean, Sean, you believe the gospel is literal, right? Like, that's the one thing you stand on. This is literal. We all have to believe this to be Christians. The I good news? You teach this before. The, Everything else is up for grabs. Yes. But the gospel, you have to believe that that is literal. That Jesus right? rose, lived and rose from the dead? Yes. Okay, so that part you take literally. Why? Why do you take that literally and then everything else is spiritualized <coughs> and you can just, you know, take it or leave it or believe whatever you want about it. It doesn't matter. Because Paul calls it the good news, and it's the gospel by which we are saved. It says Can you it take it. that literally. They call it the good news, or is that just a the good news? I take literally. Everything else is up for grabs. Why? I take for I take Why I take it literally. Take literally. I take it literally that Jesus was a, a real person. I Why? take that literally. 
Why there, do you take that literally? Because I believe in Christ. You call me a biblical literalist. I'm the literalist. Oh, so, you know, I take everything literally. But you're taking the Bible literally there. I am taking it literally. Well, I don't. I don't claim. It's, it's I don't spiritual. claim. Well, don't you know it's just spiritual, and you're 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 putting God in a box, and you're making it all literal. And you're you're you're, you're, you're winning, Jared. You're doing a good job. You're showing that you can you can do it. But just let me tell you, uh, we have reason. We're supposed to reason. We have minds. We worship Him with our mind. We are made in His image. So when we read. We read that when wid it says that widows have seven things they must do in the old in the New Testament to really be considered viable widows. That is not what it says. We it read that to seven th things that they don't, must just let do. me finish my point, Jared. You're, you're, you're Jared. Jared. Sean, it doesn't say that. <laughs> Sounds like me five that. years ago. Jared. You're okay, women shouldn't talk in church. Does it say that? We read that and we look at what was happening and we say that was the circumstance and we say it doesn't make sense in today's world that we should continue with that. Does that help? No, because uh, it does make sense in today's world. Okay. That's your, that's your opinion. <laughs> that's no, right. Exactly the point. Exactly the point. That's my opinion. And you have your an opinion. Your opinion goes against what the Bible teaches, Sean. Uh, uh, Jared, you know, your opinion that women should... With the Bible. Jared, your opinion is women should be quiet in church, right? Uh, no, that's God's opinion, Sean. Okay, God's opinion. God You're not a biblical literal, literalist. Okay, so I, my opinion is that women can talk in church, Jared. And I think that we can, by the spirit in our minds, understand that's how the, that that was taken as a as a thing that was happening then. It's not for now. You want to be the literalist? Fine. I I welcome you. Come to our church. Try to shut the women up if you want. Good luck. But you're you're. But I'm, I'm just, just telling to you. How you how can you preach the gospel? How can you lead people to Jesus Christ, Sean? When your your whole worldview is so. Um, it's so messed up. Your, your whole way of looking at the Bible and interpreting Bible is it's spiritual, it's not literal, except for, the go except for this one, the most important doctrine, which is yeah. the gospel. God. And that we have to take literally, but you don't have to really know Jesus. You just have to climb a mountain and look up into the sky and well, God will save you. You know, you're characterizing kind of me like, now and you're, you're sort of mocking me. I'm using those as illustrations, Jared. Look it. I believe in God, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe He rose from the dead, I believe His shed blood saves me, no other way to heaven but by Him, I believe in faith, and because of those things I believe in loving. If there's more to that, they're disputable issues. If you want to believe you say in there's no other way but by Him. There's no other way, I've made that, that very clear. There's no clear. other way but by believing in Him, or just that He just makes a way for everybody? I believe He's made the way, He paid the price, it's done. So I don't even have to believe in Jesus to be saved. Oh, you'll believe. You'll believe. No, I'm asking you. Do, do I need to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved? Of course. Of course you do. Okay. So I do have to believe. You take that part literally. I do. Okay. So that part's literal. Are you okay now? I'm do you want to figure out... I'm, what I'm else do you want from me? What else do you want me just, to know to make sure I'm a Christian? What else? Ask me something else. What else do you want? I'm trying to, under, I'm trying to understand, Sean. No. How do, how do I interpret the Bible? You know, w what is the method of interpretation 
that you use, and I'm trying to examine that and see if that's a good way or if that's not a good way. I think you've made I up your mind on that. Or... However, I'll answer your question. Uh, the way you interpret the Bible is contextually, linguistically, and by the Spirit. And that's how you do it. If it, if it teaches something where there's varying opinions on them, on it, then you err on the side of love. That's how you do it, Jared. Anything. So if there's different opinions about the gospel and how, how I'm saved, then just, hey, there's different opinions, so we can't I'm really I'm going to err on the side of love, and let me tell you why. You cannot go wrong with mean? love. That doesn't mean anything, Sean. That's, I am not, so Jared. Ubiquitous, ubiquitous and like esoteric. It's, Big words, you know, it Jared. It's good. Anything. Listen, it's, it's Jared. Err on the side of Jared. love. That sounds really good, but it is it good. It is good. Love is good, Jared. You tell me, we're, we're stretching this out, we're over time, but let's just continue this. I'll talk and then I'll let you talk, I promise. Jared, we're in a state where there are people who are convinced that they have the gospel. They're called Mormons. Now there are Christians who say we have the gospel. There are oneness Pentecostals who say we have the gospel. There are churches in the state that say, if you have the gospel, you have to be baptized in this way to prove you have the gospel. In this state, what we do is, is what I do is I say, look it, if you accept Christ Jesus, you believe that he came and he died and he rose again, I'm going to leave that up between you and God. I'll teach the word. You decide what you think of teaching the word. You can choose to accept it or reject it. I don't care. I'm not the policeman for the body of Christ. It's not up to me. Everybody is responsible before God for what they believe, Jared. You believe things that are different from John MacArthur, from Chuck Smith. You believe things that are different from all these different people. But you're okay. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I don't know if that's a question, but I'm, I, I mean, you say you teach the Bible. I'm just trying to, I, I, Sean, I really just want to understand your approach, okay? Because I just explained it, it to make, you. It, it doesn't make it doesn't make sense to me. I know. Okay? I know it doesn't. Because, because the you know, God has preserved His Word for us for a reason. I mm. believe. I mean, the, the fact that the Bible has been preserved, it's really amazing how He did that. You know. Oh, uh, I know. Uh, by sending it out throughout, you know, the whole known world, and there's a multi-vocal. Uh, transmission many different lines and we can you know be sure that we have the word uh his word preserved to us today it's an amazing miracle and uh i look at my bible as an amazing treasure and gift from god and so i look do at I, it as as his as his his word to me so you know, do i uh, he, to he you inspired man to you inspired man to, to write to write words down for us I, I agree so, with you, so Jared. That, so that we can be saved and we can know how to live and, and, and I agree with you, Jared. Not to be saved, but to know how to live. Sure. But, I agree. You know, when 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 you look at the Bible and you say, Aha, look, here here is a verse where uh, it's describing widows washing people's feet and we don't do that anymore. Right. And that's not really a moral, you know right. uh, uh, condition for anything. So therefore sure. Right. Every command in the New Testament must be interpreted in light of a cultural difference. And True. if it says, you know, women aren't supposed to speak in church, 
And that's just a, a, a cultural difference, and God didn't really, you know, he preserved that and kept it for us so we could read it, but he doesn't really mean that. It, it means something different. Now, so when you teach that verse, how do you spiritualize that? What meaning does it have for you today that women aren't, are to keep silence in the churches? Uh, Is there uh, any does, meaning or application no, for you today? Uh, no, it has none. We're all one in Christ. No There's no difference between male and female, Greek and Jew. None. That was a cultural so, thing. So all scripture is not given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine? It was, yeah, for them at that time. Who was that written to when he talked oh, about the was. widows? Who so was it written say, to when he talked about... By inspiration of God wait, and was have, profitable for doctrine. Jared, it is. It was for them. And it is for us. It but is? Okay. It is. We can learn from it. We can look at what the culture was like, but that's profitable to us. But it doesn't have direct okay. application. You have to look at who the letters were written to, Jared. Who were they written to? Can you say they were written to you today? Uh, no, none of, none of the New Testament was written to me personally, Sean. Okay, then why are you, you know, taking I, I it personally? I can pick up the Bible and read it and make application on my life and learn how to live a godly life. I would agree with you. That's ridiculous to say that uh, the book of Romans was written to the Romans, so just, just skip that one. Oh, and, no. and the book of Ephesians, that was written to the Ephesians, so just skip that one too. And the book of Matthew. Jared, uh, I got your point. Jews. You don't have to go three times. Listen, I taught through Romans. I teach the Romans. I teach Hebrews. But they Why? were written to the it Romans. Wasn't written to you, Sean. It was, that book was not written to you. It was you not it? written to me. You're right. But You're there are spiritual mail has okay. no application. Okay, to you. wait. Let me give you an example. So <clears throat> let me just my turn. Let me give you an example. The Old Testament. It was written for those people at that time. The Old Testament applications were done by the time Paul started writing. They had no application to them anymore. And it took a long time for them to get over those applications. They thought they had to still look to that. Paul's telling them, no, no. Now just wait, I'm almost done. The same with the new. It was written for them. There's spiritual lessons in the Old Testament that we can still garner. There's spiritual lessons in the new, but literalism does nothing but split the body and cause division, like what it's doing right now. So literalism on the gospel, except for literalism on the gospel. Exactly, because the gospel is what we look to. Of course, and Jesus, who was he born? Did he live? Did he die? Did he resurrect? I take that literally because that is by, what, by which the Bible says we are saved. I can take that literally. I can't take women speaking in church literally. Okay, we are out of time. Uh, keep going, Jared. I appreciate your vim and vigor, and uh, love you as a brother. Thanks, Chris and he, what's that? Thanks, Sean. Love you too, man. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to go to Chris in Houston next week. We're out of time. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride. Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake A storm's arising the dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know.